Grab your Bibles. You know where to turn. Book of Genesis, we're still there. We're going to be in chapters 10 and 11 this morning. And while you're turning there, let me just kind of throw a question your way to get us started. And that is, do you feel pressure to make something of yourself? Like other than what your mom and dad told you as your extreme disappointment to them. Like, come on, make something of yourself. You know? If you laughed, that was awkward that that may apply to you. Uh, no, but seriously, do you feel this pressure like make something of yourself or be successful? Kind of this, this drive like you got to prove yourself or you got to kind of show everybody that you have a sense of value or place in our society um, or that you have some worth to your life. And we can tend to feel that if I you know, had this job or I lived in this house or had this spouse or made this much money or drove this car or had these talents, like then, then I'm somebody. Then I have a sense of worth. Then I have a sense of value. And we can, um, we, we can chase hard after success or, or self-validation. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, like, I don't need all the money. I don't need the job. Like, that's not me. Okay, what is it that you feel like you need? Like, I need people to think that I'm a good mom or dad. I need people to, to, to respect me in my job. Like, whatever it is that you feel like, this gives me a sense of value that I am somebody. What, what is it that you're chasing after? And whatever that is, what is it promising you? That, that, you, that if you got it, then you would finally be happy? If you got it, then you would finally be respected? If you got it, then you would finally be content? Like, what is it that it's promising you? And could it be that our pursuit of success or our pursuit of significance is another well-crafted lie to keep us from God? Like, just like in the garden, oh, you want to be wise? Well, here's what you need. You need this fruit, right? Oh, you want to be important? Well, then here's what you need. You need this job. You need this body. You, you, you need this income. You need this car. And we're like, oh, okay. We just bite into that chase after it. Like we can be passionate about pursuing uh, or validating ourselves or, or getting some kind of levels of success or whatever we think that it is. And guess, guys, I get it. We all want to matter. Like we all want to matter. Uh, but maybe we need to redefine what success is and where real significance is found. And the Bible gives us directions to like real deep value and significance it has nothing to do with how you look or how much money you make or how much talent you have or don't have like we want to find the directions to that maybe yeah okay two of us we're like passionate we're gonna go after this <laughs> we're just like ah, i don't know i'm content you shouldn't be right no i am not i'm kidding we should want to, i want to know this like god what where do i find significance what, what is it in your word that's, that's, that's pointing me to that? So Genesis 10 and 11, we're going to be in both. The, we're really going to focus in on just nine verses. But I want to give you the, the scope of the narrative of what's happening uh, in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Um, we just got done. Noah got off the ark. Didn't go well. Uh, again, sin still exists in our world. Uh, and in Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11, really the main goal is to get us from Noah to Abram. Um, or Abraham, which his name will be changed to eventually. But Abram is this important character in the story of God, the story we find ourselves in. Abram is the guy that God makes a covenant to to kind of fulfill his promise made back in Genesis 3 to Eve. And what, what we're seeing in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 is a line from, Ab uh, from Noah to Abram, and it's following the spread of sin and tracking the line of promise. So what I mean by that is Noah and his family get off the ark, 
sin is still, <clears throat> excuse me, sin is still present. Sin is, is spreading. There's corruption still. But despite all the corruption around us, the promise of God is still intact and is going to be fulfilled. Now, chapter 10 is known as the Table of Nations. And you just get a long list of genealogies and this tribe and this tongue and this language. And then you have their descendants. And you, you kind of get all these different uh, these nations. Then you get to chapter 11. In the first nine verses of chapter 11, we get the account of the Tower of Babel. How many of you guys are familiar with that story of the Bible? Okay, so you know where we're going. We get the Tower of Babel in the first nine verses. Then in the 10th verse... Uh, you get picked up right back up to the genealogies to get us to, to Abram. Now, uh, the Tower of Babel is uh, chronologically probably happens somewhere in chapter 10. Uh, we know that Nimrod is the leader to that. I don't know if you have new parents looking for baby names. Probably wouldn't go with Nimrod. Uh, but Nimrod is this mighty hunter, uh, not like pro- probably a hunter of people. Like he was a warrior, not a good dude, um, but he's kind of this leader in Babel. Uh, and the Tower of Babel probably took place around 100 years after the flood. Uh, one of the references to people in the Table of Nations in chapter 10 was Peleg. And it says, for, his, for in his days the earth was divided. Um, so it's like, okay, so in his days this has already happened. Nimrod was the leader to this. So it's not in chronological order. Um, But he goes in chapter 10, kind of given all these genealogies. Chapter 11 starts off with kind of this incident at the Tower of Babel. Then he picks right back up in the genealogies to get us uh, to to Abraham or to Abraham. And you you were being shown that um, you have a group of rebellious people, but it doesn't stop the plans of God. Like, it's just kind of a road bump on the way to get to Abram. Like, this is happening. God's plans are unfolding. His promise will come to fruition despite the rebellion around us. But we want to focus in on that story of rebellion and see what we can learn from that. So Genesis chapter 11 is where we're going to. So grab your Bibles. Genesis chapter 11. Let me read the first four verses. You guys ready? All right. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone by two men for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, let's stop there. You read those first four verses and you might be like, what's the problem? I don't see anything wrong here. You got a group of people. They're ambitious. They're working together. They got some goals, um, and they're going to carry it out. And you do. You see four kind of distinct goals or aims that they have. One, they want to build a city. Uh, They want to build a tower. So you kind of feel like you're playing Settlers of Catan right now. Build a city. You build a tower. Uh, Specifically, a tower that's top reaches the heavens. Now that's significant. So remember that. So they want to build a city. They want to build a tower with top reaches the heavens. Um, they want to build or make a name for themselves. And they want to avoid being dispersed. Those are kind of their four goals that are laid out there. Let's, let's build a tower or let's build a city. Uh, let's uh, build a tower. Let's build a name for ourselves and let's avoid being dispersed. And that last one is a rebellious act to what they were commanded by God to do. So if you look back at the beginning of chapter 9, there's a mandate that gets repeated 
It's this, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Like I made a big world, spread out, fill it up, go there. But they don't want to spread out, fill it up. They want to stay right where they're at. And they're going to build a city. They're going to build a tower. They're going to make a name for themselves. And they're going to avoid uh, following the command to disperse and to spread out. They're going to stay together. And really in those four goals, um, they're, they're kind of pair up or where they're connected. Because building a city is connected with avoid being dispersed. Like, we don't want to spread out. Let's build a city where we can all live together. And then building a tower is connected to making a name for themselves. But you're kind of like, how exactly is building a tower connected to making a name for yourself? What, like, what's with, what's with this tower? What's this tower all about? Because when we think of a tower in a big city, what do we tend to think about in our culture? skyscrapers right and you're going up and because we got to fit the people in those are probably nice condominiums or office space that's not what's happening here in Babel they're not building like living quarters going up Um, what they were building was known as a ziggurat who can say ziggurat get your word for the day now a ziggurat uh, was like a tiered or stair-step pyramid And this is where it got started. But when we see these in other places in history, they're pagan temples of worship. Uh, And this is where it got started. This is a religious ambition for them as well. These ziggurats, these kind of peered uh, stair-step temples, um, were, were known for being like or thought to be ladders for gods to descend and ascend. In, in pagan worship. This is where it gets its start here. Now, with their focus of making a name for themselves, I'm going to guess they're more concerned about ascending than descending. And then you're back to Genesis 3, right? We don't need God. You can be God. You can make your own choice. Like, you can rule. You can decide. Right, Adam and Eve? You don't need God. You can be like God yourself. And here they got this uh, renewed ambition to be like God. Let's, let's build this, this ziggurat. Let's ascend into heaven ourselves. And you see some similar language to Genesis 1 and 2. Let us do this. That's creation language, right? That's creation language that God said when we created the universe. And now there's like, well, let's make our own city. Let's make our own tower. Let's make our own way. And you kind of have this rebellious group of people, this prideful, rebellious group of people that are out to make a name for themselves. And they're working hard, and they're working together, and they're innovative, and they're working against God. Maybe sound familiar? Let's see how this plays out then. Verse 5 says this. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now. Don't read this verse too literal because you can make some false conclusions. Uh, It's not like God couldn't see what they were doing. He's like, well, I just got to go check it out. Or it's not that God is disconnected from his creation like he kind of did it, but he's a busy guy and he's got a lot going on. So now I get time to check into it. That's not biblically true, right? God is all knowing. He's all seen. He's sovereign over his creation. He's involved in everything that's happening. Um, so, so those are false conclusions. So what is being said by this? Like, why do they put it this way? If the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, there's some comedy and irony that's happening here. So they're building a tower. Track with me now. They're building a tower with its tops 
Where? In the heavens. And God, who is thought to live in the heavens, can't see their tower. What does that say about their tower? Yes, it's pretty pathetic, right? Like, you, from my vantage point, you want to get to the heavens? Well, that's where I'm at. I can't even see it. I mean, there's some irony and comedy in here. God's coming down like, let me see that big tower you built. Let me see that. Where's that big tower? That's like, I can't see it from heaven. I got to come down to see it. And I love how it says the children of men. The children of men. What he's saying is like, you got a bunch of kids playing in the mud, building bricks for yourself. Isn't that special? You know, build a tower. And he says, I'm going to come down to see it. Now, how many of you as parents ever said that? Don't make me come down there, right? <laughs> like, that's a, that's a complete parent move. Like, you know what's going on down there. Hence the threat that you're going to come down there. He said, if I come down there, I'm going to deal with it, right? This is a parent move. God's like, I know what's going on down there. Don't make me come down there. Like, I'm going to come down there. And if I come down there, I'm going to deal with this. And that's what he does. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and, and, there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them. From there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the, the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of them. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So they were trying not to be dispersed, and they got dispersed. In other words, you can obey or you can obey, right? Like God is going to get his way. But there's rebellion in the midst of it. And it says this is the, known as the Tower of Babel. Because God comes down and he confuses their language, which disrupts their building project. So you can imagine, um, because what we get here is some answers in Genesis 11 of why do we have different nations? Like if we're all from one family in the creation, and then you have Noah starting over with his family, how did we get different languages? How did we get different nations? And you're getting the answer to the question here. There's rebellious sin against God, and he comes down and he scrambles their language. So... For example, if all of us speak the same language, and then in a moment, we don't. And I'm like, I don't understand what you, this is just babble. This is just ridiculous. I don't even get it. I understand you. I understand you. Okay, we're going to group up. We're going to go do our thing. You're going to group up. And it forces kind of this division among people. Now, the Hebrew word for babble most often gets translated Babylon. It's the same word. Uh, this eventually becomes the great, or the great city of Babylon. Um, and this is where it gets its start or its roots. And in Scripture, Babylon symbolizes worldly pride, uh, moral corruption, and defiance against God. In fact, here's an example. This is in Daniel 4. Here's what it says. <clears throat> At the end of 12 months, he, now he in this is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Kind of a prideful statement, is it not? Now, we don't have time to preach this message, but what happens after this is he goes crazy and starts living with the donkeys and eating grass for a while. Kind of has a mental breakdown, a divinely appointed mental breakdown to humble him to recognize God. But this is kind of describes the attitude of Babylon. 
I'm great. Look what we have done. Look, look at our success. It's a very self-centered kind of, I'm not for the glory of God. I'm for the glory of man. Like in scripture, there's a contrast um, often between the earthly city of Babylon and the heavenly city of Jerusalem. In fact, you'll see that more when we get into the book of Revelation next semester. But you see this, this contrast. Well, this is the roots of that. This is the beginning of that. The beginning of kind of a self-centered, prideful uh, rejection of, of God and living for him and said living for yourself. Now, I bet there is something in us that when we read these verses, we're not sure if we like it. But let me read verse 6 again. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have, all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Right, until you come down and mess it up, God. Like here we're being successful, we're unified, we're working together, and God comes and destroys it. Like, like are you against human potential? Like you can read this passage and really question like, do I like God? Why did you come and destroy this? What's, what's the big deal? Like why is God acting in this way? And it can seem like God is against human potential and progress. Like he's not actually for the flourishing of people. Because we love this language, don't we? we? We love this language and we hear it today. If we would all just come together, nothing would be impossible for us. Right? If we would just come together, if we would be united, if we would work together, if we would, if we would just get along, then nothing would be impossible for us. Isn't that what he's saying here? Isn't he looking at them working together and being like, boy, if we don't do something like this, nothing's going to be impossible for these people. Is that a bad thing? Like, why is he interjecting here? We love this language and probably hear some of it today. Like, our problem is we just don't get along. Our problem is that there's too much division in our world. And if we could just get along as people, there's no stopping what we could do. The problems we could solve. We could end world hunger. We could end poverty. If we could just come together. You ever hear that before? What if I told you biblically that's a bad idea? Let's slow up and seek to understand this. And let's eliminate some false conclusions that we could come to. One, God is not threatened by human beings. I mean, please, right? These children playing in mud to make bricks. God made the universe. He's not threatened that they're going to build this tower to actually get access to heaven and come in and take it over. It's not, it's not the threat here. And God is not against the potential of human flourishing. God is for the flourishing of people. Like he made the garden. He said, rule over it. Subdue it. Reign. Like, I want to see you multiply, spread out, fill the earth. He wants potential and flourishing of human beings. So what is going on here? Why, when it looks at humans being successful, building a city, kind of doing their thing, working together, does God come down and stop it? And why does he say, if I don't stop it, there's going to be no uh, end to their potential of what they might accomplish? What, what is going on here? Here's what it is. I want you to hear me now. God is not against the potential of human progress, but God is against the potential of human wickedness. Do you get that? God is not against the potential of human progress, but he is against the potential of human wickedness. What he's saying is a bunch of sinful people united 
is going to produce more wickedness than a bunch of sinful people divided. You get that? From his perspective, it's like, oh, he's looking at these people rebelling against God. So he's going to make a name for themselves, living for their glory. He's like, oh, the potential of the wickedness for these people united? We've we got to do something about this. And, and the potential of sinful people divided, that, that's going to be better. He put a governor on wickedness. Do you know what I mean by that? Anybody go golfing here, ride a golf cart, and then you like punch the gas and you're really disappointed by the pace in which you're going. Right? There's a governor on a golf cart. It's like, we're only going to allow you to go this fast on a golf course. Right? The rules to be say that. God is saying, I'm, I'm setting a speed limit on the spread of wickedness here. I'm going to let the wickedness in this world spread, but I'm going to let it spread at this pace. And he does that by causing division because sinful people united, oh, <laughs> the potential of wickedness is awful. But sinful people divided, that's going to slow things up. That's going to set a different pace for it. There needs to be checks and balances for sinful people in a sinful world. But one nation, one language, one government, one leader, that lacks the checks and balance balances that sinful people need in a sinful world. Like, for example, the, re- the reason we don't have Nazi flags all throughout Cedar Rapids is because why? There is another nation to stop Hitler. Like, it exists because there's checks and balances. There's other nations. There's, there's warring going on that kind of slows the spread of evil. And you might be like, That's kind of a straw figure example there. It's not like anybody is advocating for a united group of bad people that do bad things. Nobody wants that. But what about a united group of good people who do good things, who solve problems? Like, that's what we need. Okay. Well, what would happen if you have a group of people that are come together for the flourishing of human beings? And they provide and solve problems, and they're for the glory of human beings, but not the glory of God. Church, don't buy into the naive thinking of world unity. Don't buy into the naive thinking of world unity. Like, if we just come together, we would solve all our problems. If we would just be united, we would solve all our problems. Listen to me. World unity should not happen until Christ is king of it. World unity should not happen until Christ is king of it. And that will happen. I mean, that's an amen moment, right? That will happen. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Christ will come. He will rule. Like, that day is coming. But until then, we need to check our understanding. But if you think it would just... We'd just be better. If we just come together as people, we would make the world a better place. Then you don't understand the depth of human sinfulness. Pride corrupts. Power corrupts. Ultimate power corrupts ultimately. That's what he's putting them checks and balances on here. It's like, you gotta, we've got to put a governor on the spread of this wickedness. So, church, don't put your hope in people coming together. Put your hope in God coming to rescue. You got that? Don't put your hope in people coming together. Put your hope in God coming to rescue. Our problem in this world is not ultimately a lack of unity. Is lack of unity a problem in our world? You bet you. Like, we do have divisions. We, like, sin causes divisions. We see this in the story. 
But that's not our ultimate problem. It's a byproduct of a deeper problem, but our ultimate problem is a worship problem. And they got divided not because they were working together and had initiative. They got divided because they were working together against the glory of God. It was a worship problem that caused this division. And as long as this worship problem exists, that scale of unity is not good for our world. But when our worship gets fixed, when our worship gets fixed, that will be a byproduct of right worship, unity. And we'll see that in a little bit. But until then, what's the lesson here? What's the lesson of this story? Why is it in here? For, for the Israelites, for us, like wh- what's, what's the point? Now, for the Israelites, if you're getting ready to go in and take the promised land, this is quite a warning. It's a warning they needed to hear. It's a warning that we need to hear. Because if you remember back in Genesis 6 when we looked at um, the Nephilim, the, the, the giants living on that land, and their circumstances at the time were, were, you know, Numbers 13, we can't go take the promised land. The Nephilim are there. The giants are there. They make us look like grasshoppers. We're scared of that. But then you get to this story, and it's kind of this, this big warning. What they're saying is it's not the Nephilim you need to worry about. But you need to be a guard against your own pride. That's what's going to do you in. You, you can't be worried too much about the giants in this land. They're no match for God. But you better check your heart. You better check your self-centered living. Because that'll destroy you from the inside out. That'll put you against God, and you're no match for God. I mean, that's the warning to the Israelites. That's what they needed to hear. And church, it's what we need to hear. It's what we need to hear. Listen to me, Veritas. It's not the government. It's not public schools. It's not... Uh, Hollywood, it's not big tech that we need to be worried about. What we need to be most concerned as a church is a group of people that start living self-centered lives and care more about our glory than God's glory. That's the biggest threat to us as a church. When we come together every Sunday as a church and it's filled with people that are more passionate about their career than God, that are more passionate about their success than God, that are more passionate about their self-image than God, That's the biggest threat that we face. He's saying, listen, if you're going to follow God, it will put you against the world. And there's some giants in this world. But they're no match for God. I mean, come on. But if you follow this world, it'll put you against God. And you are no match for God. It's a warning here. If you make life about making a name for yourself... Because that was their driving motive, right? Let's make a name for ourselves. If you follow that and you make your life about making a name for yourself, it's going to cause division. It's going to distort worship. It's going to lead to all kinds of problems. And church, what happened to Israel? I mean, they get in and they take the promised land. David kind of clears out. They get their their land. Solomon takes over David's son. And they're kind of at the the peak of their their nation. Like they have this beautiful temple, the city of Jerusalem. The wall is like they've arrived. They got it. He's rich. He's wise. The kingdom is prosperous. And then his son Rehoboam comes along. And what does Rehoboam want to do? Make a name for himself. And what happens? Division. The kingdom divides. It splits. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Pagan worship gets involved. 
They start worshiping other gods. Babylonians come in and take them over. Right? This, right? Because it's like, if this is the way you're going to live for yourself, for your glory, not God's glory, here you go. Be like the Babylonians. Live with them. It's a mess. But here's what I want to point out to you. In our section of Scripture, in chapters 10 and 11, they still get to Abraham. Like the whole point is this genealogy from Noah to Abraham. And Abraham's this important character that the covenant is made with, that the promise comes through. And this story of the Tower of Babel is just this little road bump that gets nine verses in the midst of all this genealogy. Like, oh yeah, that happened along the way. But you still get to Abraham. Like, God's plans can't be stopped. And even though Rehoboam wanted to live for himself and he split the kingdom and the Israelites rebelled and they worshiped pagan gods and they got into Babylon captivity, you still get to Jesus. You still get to Jesus, church. Like, there's no stopping the plans of God. The sinfulness of man cannot stop the faithfulness of God. Guys, his plans are going to be accomplished. Amen? Like, that's good news. If you're kind of like, oh, that's interesting. No, that's awesome. Right? Your sin, our sin, the corruption in our world, everything that we're kind of like, oh, how can this happen? None of it is going to stop the plans of God. It's just a, a little road bump on God's plans of getting to his, his purpose. You cannot stop the plans of God. His plans will be successful. That is good news, church. Now, if God's plans will be successful, what does that tell us about finding success and significance in our life? Like, what can we learn for that? And there's this beautiful contrast. In fact, I'm going to reach just a few verses outside of our section to help us make sense of our section. Look at the first few verses of Genesis chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your what? Name great so that you will be a blessing. Isn't that kind of ironic? You're coming off a story where they're so passionate about making a name for themselves, but they did it in rebellion against God. And then you get this other guy who's like, hey, just be faithful to me, and I will make your name great. Like greatness is not found in rebellion against God. Greatness is found in faithfulness to God. Like, you get this weird contrast of, like, you got a group of people that are united, they're together, they're innovative, they're building, and they're going to make a name for themselves, and it fails. And then you got one guy who's just like, hey, just follow me, I'll show you. Just, just follow me, and I will make your name great. And there's, there's this contrast of their disobedience in their pursuit of greatness. We don't want to disperse. We don't want to spread out, even though that's what God told us to do. And then you see obedience in Abraham's greatness. How does it start out? The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Just do what I told you. Spread out. And his faithfulness leads to his significance. And you ought to see the contrast between they're trying to make a name for themselves. And what are they going to build? A city. But what does God promise Abraham? A nation. Don't, don't settle for some city or the name you think you can make for yourself on your own when God offers you something so much better. Listen, church, faithfulness is the path to significance. 
That's what I want you to remember. When you're trying to like make something of yourself, when you're trying to like strive and prove your worth, I want to tell you this. Faithfulness is the path to significance. Just I want to live for God's glory and not my own. That's where greatness is found. That's where significance is found. I didn't say ease. I didn't say faithfulness is the path to like an easy life. If you know Abraham, if you know the story of any faithful character in Scripture, that's not where you get but significance. Faithfulness is that's where you find it. It's not found in the job that you have, the home that you live in, the car that you drive. It's not found on a scale or in a mirror. It's not found in how many friends you have, how many likes you get. Faithfulness, everlasting significance is found in simple, everyday obedience. Simple, everyday obedience. Don't settle, church. Don't settle for the name you think you can make for yourself when God is offering you a better name. Look at Revelation chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who will conquer, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new, what? Name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Or look at Revelation chapter 3. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the what? Name of my God. And the what? Name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name. Why would you ever settle for the name you think you could make for yourself when God is offering you a better name and a better future? like the prodigal son story. I'm sure you're familiar with the famous parable of Jesus and the prodigal son, but you have this rebellious son. He's a wealthy family, and he wants to make a name for himself, or he wants to live life and find joy. And what does he do? He runs away from his father. He takes his inheritance, and he, and he squanders it. He tries to get the most out of life, the good life, the fun life. I want to find some value, some significance. I'm going to go out and make it on my own. And he runs into his own failure. And then he heads home. And what happens when he heads home? His father runs out to him and does what? Puts a ring on his finger and a robe on his back. Says, your value is here with me as a part of this family. Not out there. Your value is connected to me. Not in rebellion against me. And this young uh, prodigal son, what did he want to do? He wanted to party. But it isn't ironic that when he comes home, what does his father do? Throws a party. He throws a party. You're not going to find what you're looking for apart from God. It's in God. It's connected to God. It's faithfulness to God is where you'll find your significance. And listen, guys, I know we all want to matter. I know we all want to matter. And maybe you're working really hard to make a name for yourself. I mean, hopefully none of you are building a ziggurat in your backyard. (laughs) We should talk if that's the case. But that doesn't mean you're not still trying to climb a ladder. Maybe at work. If I could just get that promotion. If I could just get that salary bump. If I could just get that position of authority. If I could could just kind of climb that ladder. Then I'll be somebody. Then I'll matter. Then I'll prove my worth. Or maybe it's 
your image. If I could just get a flat stomach, if I could just lose a little bit of weight, if I could just look a little younger, then I'll be somebody. Then I'll matter in this world. Then I'll show my worth. Or maybe you're just lost in the self-promotion of social media. I mean, we don't have towers, but we do have platforms. And if that platform is all about me, and if I just want to show you what I did yesterday and what I ate and what I exercised and where I went and who I had over, and if you could just like it, if you could like my picture, how many likes did I get? How many views did I get? And I know you're like, well, everybody does that. Well, they were pretty united in building the Tower of Babel, too. And I'm not here to, like, condemn you, but what I want to tell you is, like, it doesn't fulfill you. It doesn't satisfy you. It doesn't give you worth. It doesn't last. It doesn't end well. But the plans of God, being faithful to God, living for God's glory, that ends well. Chapter 12, he says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, you're going to want to be a part of what I'm up to. This is where you're going to find significance. This is where you're going to find greatness in your life, being faithful to me and my plans. My plans end good. My plans will come to fruition. You're going to want to be a part of what I'm up to. And where we see in the Tower of Babel, sin divide, self-centeredness divide. What we see in the story of God is the gospel unites. Because this is what happens in Acts chapter 2. Now they're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from what? Every nation under heaven. Where did we get all these nations from? Genesis 11. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now what was being spoken? Peter was preaching the gospel in Acts 2. And what was divided in Genesis 11 because of self-centered sin was now being undone in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't just end there. It gets even better. This is Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every what? Nation, from all tribes and peoples and what? Languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The gospel undoes this broken division of sin. You're not going to find it anywhere else but restored worship of God. Because you have such a beautiful picture of unity in Revelation 7, but what are they all doing together? Worshiping King Jesus. This is a beautiful restoration of the brokenness we see in Genesis 11. And guys, right now the world tells us that if you want to matter, then where you live and how you dress and how you look and what you make and what you drive matters. But what if we were a group of people that didn't buy into that? What if we were a group of people that that our ambition in life was faithfulness. I just want to live for the glory of God. What if our mission of life was, I'm just going to trust Jesus, not just for the forgiveness of sins, but for significance. And what he says, I'm going to do. I'm just going to live my life to honor and glorify him. Where might that lead? Might that lead to greater contentment and joy than what you could find on your own? 
might that lead to a greater sense of significance than you could achieve on your own? Might that lead to a greater name than you could create for yourself on your own? Because Jesus is the best example of this life as well. I didn't put this on the screen, but I want to read it to you. This is in Philippians chapter 2. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition, like build the tower, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. So we have to understand Christ Jesus and what he did to have this mind who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't like try to make a name for himself. He didn't live for his own glory, but for his father's. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed in him The name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and at every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God his Father. He lived for the glory of God, not for his own name, but it was that faithfulness that gave him exalted name. The same that we see in Abraham. Abraham lived for the glory of God, he was faithful to him, and he gave him a name that was great. Faithfulness is the path to significance. And church, because Jesus lived this way, we can. When we take communion and we look at the body broken for us and his blood shed for us, what we're we're being reminded is you don't have to prove your significance anymore. There's no ladder for you to climb. You don't have to validate yourself to this world. You are loved by God. You have significance in Christ. You have a name given to you, church, Stop chasing significance outside of God. It is offered to you inside of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just want to lift up everyone in this room who is fighting the thoughts that they don't matter and they have nothing to offer. And they're trying to prove themselves in this world. Trying to show the rest of the world that they have some value. And they're looking in the wrong places. Turn our eyes to you. That we would find our significance and our worth in you. And we would stop trying to climb the ladders the world is putting before us. And we would just passionately live faithful lives to you. Trusting you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.